Wiser podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hello, I'm Dr. Siswe Mbofu-Walsh, and welcome to the Wiser podcast. Wiser collaborated with the Committee on Global Thought at Columbia University and Africana Studies at Barnard College in New York on a project on unsettlement. Unsettlement was founded to address the predicament of those who today are stranded in states of indefinite displacement, deferred arrival, and recurrent departure. People who live in places that lack infrastructures of permanence, but who must reside there for years, decades, even generations. They are often on the move, but lack the freedom and rights of mobility. Unsettlement is impelled by the need to generate concepts and forms of practice that move beyond the idea of migrancy as such and the associated assumptions of transition. Here, we offer in two parts, one this week, one next week, ways of thinking about unsettlement, each very different from the next, but cumulatively offering exciting entry points for approaching this topic. First, Professor Rosalind Morris speaks in a little bit more detail about unsettlement as an emerging concept, followed by Isabel Hofmeyer, Yvette Christiansen, and Mpo Matzipa. The project on unsettlement arose from my own research in South Africa but was given impetus in discussions with the Committee on Global Thought. It's become an entirely new venture in the collaboration with WISER. The project is fundamentally an effort to generate the concepts and the terms with which to grasp a present for which social theory and political discourse has not yet prepared us. Not only are hundreds of millions of people newly or recursively on the move, but many of these people are now in states and will be in states that were or are imagined as temporary, but that extend across decades and even generations. The discourses of migrancy have not been able to help us understand the predicaments of these people, nor the general and intensifying affective sense of our time, which is that of being epistemically, conceptually, and politically, as well as materially unsettled. Our aim is to address these phenomena, bringing together historically specific and theoretically daring work so as to overcome the no longer helpful binary oppositions that counterpose forced migration to something called voluntary economic movement. Economic destitution, radical indebtedness, the extending duration of wars and climate change are traducing these old oppositions and changing the temporal scales on which we must base our analyses and invent our solutions. We can no longer think of people in terms of a teleology of departure and arrival, And while we have to build on the discourses of migration studies or refugee studies, we need new concepts in order to contend with new political and changing physically, physical realities. And we need to think in ways that address the entanglements of phenomena that are otherwise too often sequestered as artificially discrete objects. Our sense when we started is that many people around the world are already doing excellent work on issues that could help us collectively generate these new concepts and solutions. And the CGT project aims to help us all learn from each other. We're convening groups of scholars, artists, and journalists around the world to share their work on questions and phenomena that are visible in their respective milieu, but that are also in some senses generalizable or visible elsewhere. We're also trying to make use of our older or newly discovered digital networks. 
The pandemic has intensified our sense of the relevance of the concept of unsettlement, even as, and perhaps because it has, exposed and intensified the phenomena that lead to it. Our collaboration with the scholars at Wiser has been at the core and is in fact foundational for what we're doing. And this is both because of the excellence and inventiveness of the work being done by people at Wiser, and because Wiser has developed so many methods for actually nourishing new ideas. There's something incredibly exciting going on here. The profundity of the theoretical work, born of rigorous empirical and historical research, and given form in ways that are aesthetically engaging and conceptually challenging, this is a model for us at CGT, and we're looking forward to extending this partnership. My entry point into unsettlement is the colonial category of the landed immigrant and the idea of being landed. The term has various meanings. The first is physical, being put on shore. The second is legal, denoting legitimate entry. The phrase landed immigrant means someone lawfully and permanently admitted. In the context of settler colonialism, this landing or becoming landed took place on the artificial ground of the port city, most of whose space is invented through land reclamation projects undergirded by submarine infrastructure. The port city is hence the place of inventing land, both physically and symbolically, through enacting excessive rituals of governance over a tiny area, an embodiment of the colonial state in miniature. Part of this invention of land also involves the definition of the sea as a place of dumping. Unclaimed or suspect goods were cast into the sea, an act which confirmed the ocean as an anti-environment. These practices of disposal form part of the waste-making systems of colonial rule, where certain people were rendered as waste, whether through the slave trade, indenture, or penal transportation. The process of creating settlement depends then on an elemental politics, with land and water being deployed and weaponized in the interests of creating landed subjects. In this talk, I'd like to extend this focus on elemental politics by foregrounding the categories of wet and dry as central to the construction of colonial binaries. To illustrate this point, I use an 1879 image from the Illustrated London News of a custom scene in Port Elizabeth, a small outport in the Cape Colony. The scene unfolds on a beach where a team of porters unloads cargo from two lighters anchored in the background. Bowed down by the sacks on their heads, the porters move through the shallow water towards the beach. In the right-hand corner, a customs official, known as a landing waiter, somewhat overdressed and surprisingly dry for someone who works on a beach, records details in a notebook. His well-pressed uniform accomplishes the colonial work of emphasising the semi-clad bodies of the workers. His literacy performs a similar task of differentiation, underlining the presumed unlettered state of the porters. Yet beyond these obvious colonial binaries lies another set of oppositions, that between sea and land, wet and dry. In contrast to the spruce landing waiter, the porters look rather like an alien amphibious species emerging from the water of neither the land nor the sea. This amphibiousness is accentuated by the positioning of the labourers who appear condemned to the beach. Day after day, they will carry their loads to a warehouse, then trudge back to another set of lighters. The image relies on an instrumentalization of the elements. To be quote-unquote civilised is to be dry and not to have to go into the water. 
This picture of porters working on the beach reminds us of the large numbers of people compelled into amphibian labour in order to construct colonial port city infrastructure, be these political prisoners working on the Durban breakwater in the wake of the Bombata Rebellion of 1906 or transported convicts in Australia. Parenthetically, such scenes bring into focus the figure of the harbour engineer who oversaw these amphibian workers and acted as one of the earliest shapers of colonial regimes of labour control. This image of amphibian labour in Port Elizabeth is somewhat unusual. Representation of workers and convicts labouring on marine infrastructure are rare. Instead, what one sees is the product of their labour, the breakwaters, the piers, the dry docks and so on. The amenities of the port imply that the viewer can experience the colonial narrative of arriving on the coast and moving into the interior without ever getting wet. The sea by means of which settlers initially arrived can be forgotten and full-landedness claimed. One of the preconditions of the state were the amphibian workers labouring between land and sea, compelled to embody the unsettlement which migrant colonists sought to disavow. It is, of course, well known that colonial states create structural conditions of unsettlement, attending to the politics of elements of the wet and the dry extends our understanding of these processes. In 1821, 13 years after a series of rolling bans on the slave trade, Samuel Ajayi Crowther was moved as a new captive through the terrain of present-day Nigeria. In his recounting of this experience, he remembered measuring distance and time by the number of dialects through which he passed, each dialect taking him further from sensibility until he moved like a ghost. He not only did not know what his future might be, he became unrecognisable to others, but more to himself. Some 60 years later, on the other side of the continent, a Lubin-speaking woman named Buaniko recounted a similar state of unknowing. She described the many times that she was enslaved during the 1880s, escaping eventually to a mission station just before she was to be taken to the Indian Ocean coast to be sold again. The emotional flatness of her account and the progression of her narrative with its its and then and then form mimes an experience of only knowing what came next as it happened. Accounts like these suggest that becoming a slave was more than a change of legal status. It was a geocorporeal and psychosocial unwielding even before the first sale occurred. These uh, narratives or these stories also suggest the persistence of unfreedom long after slavery's legal overthrow. I'm concerned with the unsettled forms of freedom granted to African peoples who were liberated between 1808 and the turn of the 20th century from slave ships crossing the Indian Ocean, the Atlantic, the Mediterranean and Caribbean waters. Liberated by British, American, Portuguese and Brazilian naval vessels, they became a category of Africans, liberated Africans, or recaptors in English, libertados in Portuguese and engagés in French. What might be discerned in thinking about liberated Africans in those places of refuge into which they were inserted to serve periods of apprenticeship? These included the refuge colonies like Seychelles or Natal, the British West Indies, Angola, Bombay in India, and the Cape Colony. 
There were also temporary staging refuges such as St. Helena and Aden or Malta, from which liberated Africans would be moved to wherever their labour was needed. And there were the colonies established as colonies of the free, like Sierra Leone and Liberia, where treaties had secured land from locals. One might imagine that liberation entailed a sense of a return to a state of knowing, or a return to less uncertainty, but the record of the liberated Africans showed that this was just a second movement of unsettlement. Take, for example, the case of Ali Aysami Gazimabe of Bornu, when in 1818 he was brought up from the hold of the slave ship that was attempting to carry him and about 700 other captives across the Atlantic, he saw what he could only describe as a forest far away and coming toward them. He tried to make sense of that vast, unfamiliar surface of the ocean, water being familiar, but the expanse incomprehensible. He reached for a familiar image to explain what he saw. In truth, the trees of that forest were the three masts of the anti-slaving patrol ship that was about to liberate him and the others. Neither the ocean nor the ship were familiar. Liberated Africans were themselves set adrift for a second time. But their movement was the ironic terrain on which settler colonists competed with the metropole, clamouring for steady supplies of labour as the metropolitan governments attempted to regulate those demands and those clamours. The question for the metropole was what to do with these liberated people. Settler colonists, of course, had their own ideas. Liberated Africans would replace the labour lost by the ban of slavery itself. Behind the facades of colonial governance and those performances of order, the treaties, the registers, passports, technes of surveillance, the centres of imperial power were struggling to keep from dissolving into so many colonies. That conflict and the fight over the movement of unfree labour was actually intensified by abolitionism, which we might think of as the movement against forced movement. Not received as settlers, liberated Africans were vulnerable to being spirited away and resold or trapped in servitude. If they tried to leave their employment or move without permission before contracts expired, vagrancy laws awaited them. There was a terrible, horrible rhythm to this movement in and out of states of unfreedom, just as there was a rhythm or tempo to enslavement itself. For example, all slave-reliant agricultural contexts were bound to cycles of sowing and harvesting that revolved around the ageing of bodies and their loss of productivity. And for women, of course, this included reproduction. While the life cycle of the flesh, as Horton Spiller's notes, ended, the cycle of harvesting was relentless, as was the market for satisfying tastes and appetites, and as were the demands for newly youthful, able, labouring bodies. Registered ages of liberated Africans in the Indian Ocean become younger as the century progresses. And accounts of being raided show that slavers had their own times. They came when harvests were ripe, when the weather was right, and not during rainy seasons. At the time of sale, the cycles of sowing and harvests of lives were linked to and governed by meteorological cycles, monsoons, trade winds, ocean currents. Dows and other vessels had their loading seasons. Naval vessels planned their schedules around these. There are 
Before you now, some of the contours of my research of almost three decades, whose aim is to track and consider the significant role of liberated Africans in the history of colonial nation formation. These are stories not only of the movement of peoples, but efforts to regulate that movement, and in the process to consolidate the territorial coherence and sovereignty of metropolitan states. Now, how might these past forms of unsettled freedoms contribute to the conversations of our unsettlement project that we are in the process of defining? There may not be easy dovetailings, but there are some possibly generative points of convergence, one of which is anxiety. And here the anxiety of host states and communities who looked to unsettled peoples within their borders and ask a familiar question arises, what to do with them? My project aims to answer that question with another, the question posed by the heirs to the liberated Africans, how do we live here? I come to the question of unsettlement through an exploration of African cities. The study of African architecture and African cities has been informed by a number of imaginaries that limit the scope of what might constitute an imaginable future or futures. Cities both in Europe and Africa have undergone a significant recalibration of urban space, subtended by large-scale in-migrations, new regimes of surveillance and spatial control. These recalibrations are coupled with discourses and regimes of representation that seek to keep Africans immobilized in place. The modalities of struggle and inventiveness that characterize some of these transformations not only challenge the sovereignty of states, modes of governance and control, but also pose challenges to the forms and expressions that cities will take in Africa and elsewhere. I explored some of these questions in African mobilities, a multi-year distributed exhibition and curatorial project that was equally concerned with exploring the imaginative possibilities for architectural and urban research in Africa and the diaspora. The project explored how architecture responds to the complexities of migration and circulation of people, ideas, resources and aesthetics, both in physical space and in spaces of the imagination. Like B.C. Silver's Ashiko model, the exchanges in particular were led by regional collaborators and served as platforms in which a network of leading design practitioners, artists and scholars worked collaboratively to define their research agendas. Rather than any a priori assumption regarding the outcomes of the project, we were equally concerned with intellectual mobilities, the circulation of ideas across linguistic, territorial and disciplinary divides. I was very invested in exploring a relational, multiscalar and multi-sided approach to African urbanization and architecture as we sought out imaginative ruptures or porosity between rigid disciplinary compartmentalizations. My spatial thinking was informed by the work of Catherine McKittrick, who argues that landscapes are permeable and material indications of the uncertainty of place, and that black geographies and blackness itself are isomorphic, in the sense that blackness has the possibility to become a site of radical possibility and complex temporalities. However, this is a geography that is also genealogically wrapped up in the historical unrepresentability of black people. I join McKittrick in arguing that this notion of unrepresentability calls for a representation of human geography, urbanism, and architecture. A foundational site for thinking about my curatorial practice 
and the conceptualization of these exchanges was hair braiding on Bree Street in downtown Johannesburg. As a site of cultural production, it was made up of those identified as South Africans and what Nilika Jaywadin describes as the unhomed, those who had chosen to inhabit Johannesburg from elsewhere. These networked economies reconfigured and generated complex and itinerant microgeographies that reanimated underutilized and abandoned sites in the inner city. Against the backdrop of xenophobia, migrant and immigrant women in turn had created zones of precarious intimacy, care and economic and cultural exchange. This extruded web of activities generated differentiated thresholds of accessibility and permeability, ongoing programmatic instability, and also instability in the identities of the city's inhabitants. In terms of the project, the exchanges created collision zones among different constituencies that would otherwise be dispersed or exist as as discrete social communities, such that taken for granted territorializations and cartographies of knowledge production were reconstituted as a porous network of negotiation, exchange and collaboration. The exchanges were also an enactment of an ongoing ecological experiment that is black, social, cultural, and intellectual life. This ecology of circulation and distribution is reflected in other urban zones beyond Johannesburg and can also be found in the south side of Chicago. In his article, Architecture and Tech Life in the Hyper Ghetto, The Sonic Ecology of Footwork, Danvia Singh Bra argues that a ghetto ecology in Chicago is both a racialized sociological object of knowledge and it offers conceptual accounts of the aesthetic sociality of blackness as a territorial formation. He draws on George Lewis's theorization of black musical production as improvisation of distributed intelligence to suggest that black music as distributive force realized through the phonic is materialized in ways that are never fixed to a singular force or form. According to Bra, this phonic materiality moves through, ruptures and distributes blackness and it necessitates an alternative understanding of experimentation through the dissolution of individual genius as central to cultural production. I draw on Anit Singh and Danvir Bra to think about how the logics of containment, instability and fractured infrastructures across cities, regions and continents shape the ecologies in which many different actors sometimes live together and encounter each other in conditions of pronounced precarity and in which survival is not synonymous with self-contained individual conquest and expansion, but rather as livable collaborations working across difference and contamination. By conceptualizing contamination as collaboration after Tsing, I wonder if we might further explore how messy transnational encounters elicit productive hybrid registers, epistemological objects, frameworks, and world-making projects such that mutual worlds and new directions might emerge. <laughs>